Premier Christian Newscast. What on earth is going on with safeguarding in the Church of England? That may be a question you've had running through your head if you've seen any coverage of the church in the last few months. There have been open rows between senior church officials and clergy, formal dispute notices fired back and forth between squabbling church bodies, independent consultants hired, suspended and then sacked, accusations of callousness, incompetence, secrecy and more. Reviews and reports announced and then cancelled and then resumed. If the overriding impression is one of chaos, then it frankly is quite hard to disagree. And this chaos culminated last weekend in remarkable scenes at the General Synod, the Church of England's Parliament. On the other side of all this institutional dysfunction are very important questions. Are children and vulnerable adults safe in the C of E? Is the Church able to do right by survivors and victims of abuse? Will independent oversight and challenge ever be established of how the Church does its safeguarding? Or has the time come to stop the church marking its own homework and make all safeguarding work take place by outside, genuinely independent groups? I'm Tim Wyatt, and this is the Premier Christian Newscast. This week, I'm speaking to survivor advocates, safeguarding experts, church leaders and others to try and figure out how the church got to this point of crisis around safeguarding and what has to happen next. Fair warning before we plunge into this story. It's a complicated one with lots of Byzantine church committees and procedures. And it's fundamentally also a contested one. There are two different accounts of how this all fell apart, and we don't yet, and may never, know which one is closest to the truth. But here is my best attempt to explain how the church got into this mess. Over the last 20 years or so, there have been countless scandals in which priests and church staff, sometimes high-profile figures such as bishops, have been exposed as abusers. And for every horrible story of young people assaulted over many years, there have also been cases where victims and survivors have attempted to report their ordeals to people within the church, only to be ignored. In the wake of this, the CFV has put in a lot of work to overhaul its safeguarding apparatus massively increasing the size of the National Safeguarding Team, which investigates allegations, and forcing all parishes and dioceses to implement strict protocols on training, DBS checks, policies, and a myriad of other rules. It's hard to know how much all of this has worked to prevent further abuse, but it sadly hasn't stopped the steady stream of historic cases coming to light. Many of these lead to lessons learned reviews, which generate a fresh set of recommendations on new reforms to procedure and training. All of this means that safeguarding in the Church of England, which began with a slim 15-page child protection policy in 1995, is now an enormous chunk of the Church's work, both nationally and across the 42 separate dioceses and 12,000 parish churches. So, in 2021, the Archbishop's Council, which is basically the executive committee of the C of E, and in charge of strategic planning and national spending decisions, decided a new body was needed. 
They wanted to create an independent safeguarding board, ISB, which would provide external scrutiny. It was supposed to examine and critique the church's policies and practices and offer ways to improve, and it would be exclusively staffed by people from outside the church. The first three members of the ISB were Maggie Atkinson, the former Children's Commissioner for England, Steve Reeves, a safeguarding professional with a long career at the Scouts and Save the Children among others, and Jasvinda Sangera, a survivor of forced marriage aged 14 and now a long-time victims campaigner. In the first phase of their work, they were hired as contractors by the Archbishop's Council, which also provided their administrative support to begin scrutiny of safeguarding, but also to chart out a path by which a second phase ISB could be set up as its own separate legal entity from the church. However, things started to go wrong within the very first year. Atkinson, who chaired the three-person board, broke data protection rules regarding passing on emails from survivors and was censured by the information regulator. Reeves and Sangera then fell out with Atkinson and refused to work with her before she eventually resigned. Then, the Archbishop's Council decided to appoint Meg Munn as an interim chair to replace Atkinson while her long-term successor was found. Munn, a formal social worker and government minister, was already the chair of another church body, the National Safeguarding Panel. Although she also is not part of the church, she was deemed by Reeves, Sangera and many other abuse survivors that they were working with as insufficiently independent and also rejected. Many of the survivors refused to work with Munn, as did Reeves and Sangera. Despite efforts to foster mediation, both the Archbishop's Council and the two original ISB members each served each other with a formal dispute resolution notice. After crunch talks across May, the Council decided its working relationship had entirely broken down and terminated Reeves and Sangera's contracts. And so this was the firestorm in which the Synod met just a few weeks after the ISB had been shut down. Sangira and Rees were taking to social media and speaking to journalists to air their version of events, which was effectively that the church hierarchy had tried to impose a non-independent chair on them and was now stifling any challenge to their safeguarding procedures from outside. Numerous survivors who had been working with the ISB including some who had actually begun formal reviews of their cases, refused to let their data be handed over to the Archbishop's Council, meaning they were now left in limbo. The issue came to a head on Sunday afternoon at the Synod, when the ISB had been due to give a presentation on its work to the 400 elected members. Now, with the ISB no longer existing, some members of the Archbishop's Council instead took to the stage to explain their side of the story and take questions. But before they began, they gave the microphone to Jane Chavu, a survivor of church-based abuse, who had been working with both the council and the ISB. I'd like to thank the members of the former members of the Independent Safeguarding Board, uh, and in particular Jaswinder and Steve, for doing what you asked them to do, to hold the church to account publicly if needs be, for any failings which are preventing good safeguarding practice from happening, the mission statement on their website. For as we learned this weekend, getting the papers prepared for synod was more important than the lives of survivors. At 12.17 that day, 
Excuse me. At 12.17 that day, Jasvinda contacted me to share the devastating news. I felt like my whole world had crumbled around me. I trusted the ISB. I had hope. And now that hope had been snatched from me and trampled underfoot. At 13.07, the NST emailed to inform me. I had already seen the media reports and had been contacting other survivors who were as stunned and shocked as I was. All ongoing independent reviews were immediately paused with no support or interim arrangements in place. Survivors are still waiting to discover, as no ISB exists anymore, who is commissioning the reviews. Who will sign off the reviewer's report? Who will be responsible for ensuring the recommendations are implemented? The impact is not just on the 10 survivors with um, ongoing or pending reviews and Mr X with the completed review waiting for his recommendations to be implemented. It affects all survivors watching, waiting, hoping for independent scrutiny and accountability. Many survivors have contacted me to say the church feels unsafe. In their words, what an absolute mess and carnage for everyone. How this could have happened with an appropriately regulated organization. They've disbanded the only safety I have. My anxiety is through the roof and I'm struggling to function on a day-to-day -day level. I haven't felt safe since the announcement. My trust in the institutional church is now completely shattered. It's not just trust. The most difficult part is the lack of care. How can the church be like this? The damage done is beyond words. For some, it will be the last straw and cause irreparable damage, not just to their relationship with the church, but in their lives, their well-being and their faith. It's not just the impact of the reputational damage, the further trauma to victims. It's the wider church feeling complicit in this, which is a moral injury in itself. The safety of the church has been impacted directly now and for the future. If council members say today, we are listening to survivors and we are committed to full independence, you will understand me if I say I don't believe them. After lengthy applause, the members of the Archbishop's Council tried to explain what had happened and how the dismissal of Reeves and Sangera did not mean that they were opposed to independent scrutiny of their safeguarding. The Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell, 
the second most senior clergy person in the C of E, adopted a tone of contrition and regretfulness. But the other thing I, I want to emphasise is that we do take collective responsibility for this as the Archbishop's Council. Yes, yes, we, we wish we weren't here, but we have proceeded all along in the knowledge that we are working with people of goodwill and in the belief that we do all want the, the same thing, but we acknowledge that we, we have failed to get there. Um, and the decisions that we took in getting here were unanimous. I, I want you to know, Synod, though I, I can't make you believe me, but I want you to know that the decisions we took were some of the most painful decisions I've ever had to be part of in my life and work, but we took them believing them to be the right decisions for the safeguarding of the church. Could we have communicated them better? Could things have been different in the past? Well, they're things we will discuss and they are certainly things that we have to learn from. But, but I do want you to know that. Our concern has always been for the safeguarding of the church. Um, uh, and this is a watershed moment for us. We can't get this wrong again. We, the Archbishop's Council, we, the General Synod, we, the Church of England, can no longer think that we can deliver these things ourselves. That, that I think, is the key learning. Um, not only do we need independent oversight and scrutiny of safeguarding, we need independent help in deciding how best to do it, uh, which I think is what Jane was saying to us. I can't tell you how sorry I am that it's taken this long for us to see it with such clarity. But we need independent scrutiny, but we need independent help in deciding how best to do it and implementing it once it is decided. Thank um, you. And this is, this is now our, our determination. Now it was time for members of the Synod to rise and put their questions to the panel. Some were curious or sympathetic, but many others were furious and made it clear they believed that dissolving the ISB was a betrayal of survivors and had set back safeguarding in the church for years. Things quickly began to get fractious and uncomfortable. One speaker accused Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, of lying to the Synod during an earlier session when he had given the impression he personally had opposed firing the ISB. Another suggested William Nye, the C of E's most senior official and the Secretary General of the Archbishop's Council, of skewing the facts around the case. Gradually, more and more people began to demand to know why Reeves and Sangira had not been asked to speak. Indeed, it was quickly ascertained that they were actually in the room, sitting in the public gallery and ready to take the microphone. But here, events lurched towards farce, as for over half an hour, procedural rules of the Synod and legal advice kept preventing efforts to allow Reeves and Sangira, who were not elected members of the Synod and therefore could not simply approach the microphone to ask a question themselves, onto the stage. At one point, the chair of the session said a member could not ask for the rule barring non-members to speak to be temporarily suspended unless they could actually state the number of that specific standing order. 
Later, the legal clerk advised Cottrell that he could not personally invite the pair to speak under his power as president of the synod, as the rules stated that power lay with the presidents, plural, and his fellow president Welby earlier had to leave the synod to be at his mother's deathbed. Frustrations grew and grew in the chamber with the pig-headed stubbornness of the synodical rules, until finally a workaround was devised. The entire synod would be suspended temporarily, but the microphones would be left on, and so if members just stayed in their seats, they might just happen to hear from two individuals who just happened to also be in the room. And so finally, the now infamous pair took to the stage to hit back at the Archbishop's Council. Reeves went first. But of course, this isn't about us. This really isn't about two individuals who have been appointed to um, a board. It's about this broader approach that the church um, adopts for itself when it comes to safeguarding. The Independent Safeguarding Board in the events of the last 18 months or so are a very small part of a very large trajectory in a church that has failed significantly year after year, decade after decade, to do what is due of it to survivors victims of abuse and people who potentially could become victims of abuse. Um, the solidarity that um, people feel with survivors is really significant and if you go outside and talk to those people, I know that they're very grateful for that. Um, solidarity works to a degree, action needs to follow too. Standing in solidarity with people is important, but change is even more important. One of the things that's been most challenging over the last two weeks has been hearing from survivors for whom hope is slipping away. They feel that this decision has taken away from them something which they feel they deserve and have fought for for a long, long time. <clears throat> what I would say to you, one of the challenges for me, and, and Jasvinda will speak for herself, is that the meaning of words in this context is very different to the rest of um, society. It's very clear to me that when the church or the Archbishop's Council talks about independence, they do not mean independence in the way that you and I and the average person on the street means independence. They mean semi-detached, not independent. When the Archbishop's Council um, talks about trust, they don't mean the word trust in the same way as we mean the word trust, and people in the street mean the word trust. What they mean is obedience. When they talk about communication, they don't mean communication in the way that the rest of us understand communication, the average person in the streets. They mean loyalty. And I, I challenge you, go back to the public statements that you've heard around this. Supplant those words and the meaning will be clear. The reason we are in this situation is somebody somewhere had a very clear blueprint about what independent safeguarding in the Church of England should look like. They appointed people to develop that. When it started going in a, in, in a direction that they didn't like or didn't think it met that blueprint, they recoiled. They pulled back. When you talk about wanting to rapidly move towards an independent structure, we presented a path for an independent structure, including an interim arrangement that would allow an independent safeguarding board to exist as a separate legal entity as a matter of pace. We presented that to the Archbishop's Council. Their reaction was to reject those recommendations and impose a chair upon the board in contravention of the terms of reference that they themselves had approved. So if you want to know what the intention of an act is, I've learned over quite, quite a few years, you want to know what the intention of an act is, 
Look at the outcome, look at the impact, and work backwards. Then it was Sangira's turn. And we were invited to Archbishop's Council. We shared all our concerns. Jane shared her concerns at that meeting. But the feeling, and I'm somebody that has advocated for victims and survivors for three decades, is that you are listening, but you are not actually listening and hearing and acting. I looked at the advert and I wanted to make a difference because I saw the church was on a journey and I really wanted to make a difference. And that's why I applied for the role. Today I've listened to people say from Archbishop's Council, they want to invite independent people to do independent work. Isn't that what we were doing, Steve? That is exactly what we were doing. And I now think we were too independent. We did our job too well. And when I'm being told, and Steve's being told, that we are too survivor-led and too survivor-focused, I feel the church has a problem. Because actually, you should be welcoming the fact that we have achieved what some of you haven't achieved in that leadership role, and that is gaining the trust and confidence of victim survivors. Why don't you welcome it instead of not welcoming that? So please, read our dispute notice and, and, and listen to what we're saying. Because I personally feel a responsibility to those survivors who trusted us with their stories. Those reviews, and let me tell you, when somebody decides to do a review, they are at the dead end of a road. They've been at local dioceses, they've had their stories looked at under a microscope, but they haven't achieved justice or they haven't been assured that anything has improved, that's when they come to us and say, we want you to look at it. We took months earning their trust, and you've just ripped that away from them. And I urge you to consider these reviews. Do not allow these victims and survivors to have to retell their stories again to new people. Thank you. Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. And then finally, the Synod resumed its proceedings and moved on to other items on the agenda, including, notably, approving the final stage of setting up a national redress scheme for survivors of church abuse so they can receive compensation, counselling, apologies and more. But in many ways, the damage had already been done. After interminable legal wrangling and chaotic scenes on the floor of the Synod, the ISB too had finally been allowed to speak, but the impression given simply reinforced their central complaint. The processes of the church were set up to frustrate the independent challenge they were trying to bring. So as the dust settled, I sat down with a prominent survivor advocate and campaigner, Andrew Greystone, to get his reading on what had just happened and what might it mean for the future of safeguarding in the church. Could I start by saying what are your immediate reflections coming out of the, the Synod chamber on the kind of slightly chaotic few hours we've just experienced? It has been a pretty extraordinary chaotic few hours and in a way what I've seen happening in real time at General Synod is a summary of the chaos that I see day to day and week to week in the safeguarding structures of the Church of England. Interestingly, uh, last month, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said, de described the safeguarding processes of the Church of England as chaotic. 
and he understood and of course survivors understood it those who were trying to kind of engage with the church over it Uh, but what we didn't quite expect was that at General Synod that chaos would all come together at a moment in time when the whole Synod pretty much broke down um, had to be suspended there were lawyers rushing around trying to work out what they were allowed to do and not allowed to do who was allowed to speak or not allowed to speak could we suspend the synod cancel the synod I don't know I don't know it was a a real moment of high drama I wish I had the movie rights for it <laughs> um, but it was just uh, it was just a real time expression of the utter chaos that there is in safeguarding the Church of England all year round. And of course, the, the terrible thing about that is that survivors of church abuse have to deal with that and live with that and work with that uh, all, all, all the time. How important, though, do you think was it that they, they eventually found a way so that Jasvinder and Steve could speak directly to Synod members? It was really important to hear from Jasvinder and Steve, and they spoke with real kind of passion and clarity. The big challenge is, are they all going to, tomorrow, is it all going to be forgotten? Is everyone going to go back to their day jobs and move on and nothing will change? Because the church does have a, an ability to weather all sorts of storms and come up completely unchanged. So my fear, I suppose is that maybe nothing will change, that we'll all go home, we'll say, well, wasn't that a dramatic synod at York in July 2023? And so what it is, 2023. And, um, but actually nothing will, will, will change. Because, I mean, frankly, uh, at General Synod in 2015, the lead bishop for safeguarding said, we have made such a mess of this we must all stand in silence and repentance and that was in 2015 in 2017 General Synod met in London and they had a vigil where they all stood in silence and repentance because they'd made such a mess of safeguarding five years later well it's only worse Uh, will anything change? only time will tell you're in touch with a lot of survivors directly do any of them anticipate wanting to work with the church and whatever you know whatever isb2 ends up looking like or do you think this is the end of the line for that kind of cooperation or engagement i mean in in their rational minds who would want to uh work with the with the church at all one of the extraordinary things is that, that that those survivors who the church finds to be particularly troubling the really persistent people and the vocal people and the people who are always on Twitter or always bothering the bishops or whatever, those people, those are the survivors who really care about the church. Survivors who don't care about the church just walk away. And many of them need to. Uh, And some survivors who care about the church get worn down and have to withdraw for their own good. And I've seen that from for lots of really good people. But the people who the church finds really bothersome and troubling, they're the people who care and who 
they're, they're like the people, you know, h- hanging on to the church's foot saying, I will not let go until you bless me. I will not let go of this church until you do justice. I will not allow this to be a church that treats people like it's treated me. And uh, those are the people really the church could do with listening to instead of trying to shake, their, shake them off. We heard a lot from, from bishops and members of the Archbishop's Council, you know, the kind of executive of the church, as it were, trying to explain what they were doing and, and kind of expressing some of their regret for how things panned out. Yeah. Do you kind of take them at face value? Do you believe that they are trying their best? And while this might be a kind of almighty mess, everyone's really on the same team trying to achieve the same thing? Um, well, only, t- only time will tell. Um, uh, uh, we need to judge people by their actions, not by their words. Um, I get worried by church leaders, very, the most senior leaders, the executive of the Church of England, saying, oh, we really will try and sort this out. Uh, we, we, we've messed it up, but we'll try and get it right next time. Because the core message is, you're the wrong people to be doing this. You, you don't have the experience. Um, the world of safeguarding has moved on massively. It's professionalised. There are experts, including Steve Reeves and Jasvinder Sanghera. They are, they are experts in safeguarding. Meg Munn was a politician, not an expert, but... But Steve and Jasvinder were experts. And, and there are people outside who've worked in education or have worked in the health service, worked in other areas, the police, who really know what they're doing. And, but, the, but the leaders of the church don't seem to get that. They are like amateurs having a crack at brain surgery, thinking, well, how hard can this be? We can probably get a team together who can, who can sort this out. We're bishops. We know about leading things. We'll get this organised. And we desperately want to say to them, this is beyond you. And I don't know why bishops don't take that on board because for many of the bishops I know personally, the load that safeguarding places on them is huge and hard to bear. I don't know why they don't just outsource that to people who know what they're doing. They would have easier lives if they could just say... We'll get an organisation that knows what we're doing. We'll trust them to do it for us. Hmm. That's been the big demand, I think, hasn't it, from, from survivors for, for many, many years now. And the church is maybe inching towards that, but not yet ready to take that full step of handing over all control. Yeah. Do you feel confident, you know, will you still be here in 10 years' time making the same call? Do you think the church will eventually listen and, and outsource completely all safeguarding to an, an independent body? I just don't know... My fear is that there's a sort of theological conviction within particularly the bishops in the Church of England that says we must know how to fix everything because we're the people who've been chosen by God. Um, Funnily enough, they don't do that with finances. They employ outside accountants. Um, And when they're sick, when they're poorly, you know, bishops get ill sometimes. They don't say well, I'll ask some of my fellow bishops to form a team and, and perform surgery on me. They say, no, I'll go to an outside expert who knows what to do. Um, I fear that I don't know whether they yet understand their own incompetence sufficiently to actually change. And until they have the humility to do that, 
you know, we could be here in 10 years' time. What matters about that is that today, tomorrow, next week, there are hurting, broken people. Even while I've been away here at Synod this weekend, another person has contacted me completely out of the blue, saying, I was abused by a member of the clergy, terribly abused, and I don't know what to do. Um, this, is, this is people's lives. This is a broken person. Uh, these, are, these are real people. That's what matters here. The idea of completely handing over all safeguarding to an outside body had previously been endorsed by Jane Chavu, the abuse survivor who had spoken earlier inside the Synod. It's time to take safeguarding out of their hands. We are calling on the Charity Commission to intervene and ensure that a truly independent body is set up that survivors can trust without interference from the church. Whatever happens now, it must not re-traumatise. There should be immediate care and support for the survivors with open cases and action to, sure, to ensure they are completed. I believe the only um, workable and compassionate option is for Jasvinda and Steve to be asked to do this because they already have the trust of survivors, the knowledge of the cases, and they are the data holders. There must be fully independent scrutiny that the church cannot block or interfere with. This must be developed through an open and transparent process with survivors. And some survivors want a suitable professional and fully independent body to be tasked with leading this process. I then caught up with Gavin Drake, a Synod member and another campaigner for the victims of abuse. I, th I think it was essential to hear from Steve and Jasvinda and what they had to say to us didn't make for comfortable reading and it didn't uh, meet the narrative of what we heard from the four panel members from the Archbishop's Council. Um, I was one of the first to ask a question and, and I started the question by making the point that this isn't personal, an attack on individuals on the Archbishop's Council and that's important because some members of the Archbishop's Council have received abuse over this and I'm very grateful to them because this was the first time Archbishop Stephen and other members of the Archbishop's Council said thank you to Stephen Jesvinda since their decision to disband the ISB. We've seen various comments and official reports stating the relationship had broken down and sort of implicating Stephen Jesvinda for being part of that. And today they got a thank you, which was important, because I don't think the church realises by the church, the Archbishop's Council, and, and the staff behind them, what they've lost with the ISB. Because there was talk about the 10 reviews that were undertaking, but that shouldn't make people think that there were 10 victims and survivors that the um, ISB were working with. Um, if you look behind the figures, you will hear that there were 76 victims and survivors who said they didn't want their data shared with McMunn. But that's not all the people that they were working with. They were working with hundreds of victims and survivors. Um, I haven't spoken to all of them. I don't know who they are. I've spoken to some, and they say to me that 
with Steve and Jasvinder, they had somebody at last within the church organization, albeit arm's length, but somebody within the church organization who finally listened and understood. And I'm not trying to cast doubt on the abilities or the skills or the intentions of the National Safeguarding Team and others, but there is a problem. And there's a problem in a lack of trust, there's a problem with a lack of empathy, um, not necessarily from individual people, but from the structures. You know, none of us know the facts. We've heard from the Archbishop's Council, we've heard from Stephen Jesvinder, and somewhere amongst there is, is the reality. But what you then have is the, the Archbishop's Council making the decision to disband. They're entitled to do that. But it's how that decision was then put into practice that caused the real harm. Disbanding the ISB, I think, caused harm to the church. The way the ISB was disbanded caused harm to victims and survivors. Um, and and that's, a, that's, a big, that's a big issue for me. Is there now then a big hole in the kind of provision? You said, you know, there's hundreds of survivors who had started to build a relationship with the ISB who were being supported and cared for. Where do they go now in this kind of limbo? There is no ISB, there is no replacement. Exactly. There is no place for them to go. And before the ISB, there was no place for them to go. And I'm not sure the ISB could fully deliver for them what they needed. There is a hole. The Archbishop's Council, in their statement that was issued announcing the disbanding of the ISB, said they want to reset the problem is you can't reset a relationship with victims and survivors. It's not you go along, you go along, you go along, stop, let's reset and go back. It, it doesn't work like that. Survivors are on a journey and they're on a different part of that journey. And that journey isn't linear. It doesn't start from A and go to B. It, it starts from A and, and goes to B, but in the meantime it goes to all these places and then goes backwards and then goes up and it goes down and, and back into the circle and back even before A, but beyond seeing them back. And so you can't reset that journey uh, and that relationship that the victims and survivors are on um, because they're not in a linear place. They're, they're, the, the, the victim survivor community that we're engaging with the ISB are feeling down. One of them put it this way. They said, the Archbishop's Council told us that the, they disbanded the ISB because the ISB wasn't working. Well, it may not have been working for the church, but it was working for us. And for us, it's the Archbishop's Council that isn't working. The level of trust in the organisation was already low. That's why we needed the ISB. The ISB was building that trust up. And they felt, regardless of whether the Archbishop's Council narrative is correct or the safeguarding uh, board's narrative is correct, regardless of that, they found in the ISB an organisation who was listening and taking on their, their concerns. And they felt that the ISB was speaking up against the church. They, they were the voice, Stephen Jesvinder, they were the voice that the victims didn't have. And victims and survivors in all organisations will tell you the biggest problem is that they are silenced. And in the church that is a big problem too. From the victims that I've spoken to, the victims that have been in touch with me, what they're saying is they feel that the ISB has been disbanded, disbanded because they were speaking out too much. 
they were challenging the church too much and they were saying to the church, you've got things wrong. Now, when the church set up an independent safeguarding board, whether it was completely independent, whether it was in the governance of the Archbishop's Council, whatever, when the church sets up an independent safeguarding board, they must have expected, if they'd been listening to what people have been saying for the past 20, 30 years, that they would say that the church is doing things wrong. Because, let's face it, they are. I think there's some confusion of roles. And, and part of it, I understand, is that some of the things that the ISB was saying to the Archbishop's Council was uncomfortable because it didn't fit in with the structures of the Church of England. When they said this needs to happen, that needs to happen, the Archbishop's Council said, oh, well, they don't understand in the Church of England that can't happen because of this, or this can't happen because of that, and the structures don't allow this. They need to hear that criticism of what needs to happen. And then look at, are our structures fit to do that? And if not, do we need to look at our structures? Rather than saying, we can't do that because of our structures. Our structures are not important. The lives of people are important. And if we need to change our structures to better serve and protect people, then we need to do that. So I've, I've got a private member's motion which will be debated before this comes out. But what I'm calling for is an independent inquiry led by a KC or a judge into the safeguarding structures and processes and policies of the Church of England. And I think we need that and a debate at Synod. Synod needs to take ownership of safeguarding. We need to wrest it from the Archbishop's Council. It's not something that can be handled by a small body. We need a body like the Synod with far more expertise, far more uh, widespread experience, uh, lots of different skills, uh, lots of different contacts with different people. We need the Synod to take charge of safeguarding um, policy and direction of travel. We don't need reports about what is happening in safeguarding. We need to be making decisions that the structures then implement. But Drake's motion did not get very far because the next morning his motion ran out of the short amount of time that had been allotted in the agenda for it. Drake asked for the synodical standing orders to be suspended so that the debate could continue regardless, but that required three quarters of the members to vote in favour, a number he very narrowly fell short of. And so, immediately afterwards, he left the chamber and announced he was resigning from the synod. Quote, because of the procedural shenanigans, the voice of the majority was silenced by the machinations of the standing orders and the business committee, he fulminated later to journalists. We need to do safeguarding right. We need to decide whether we're serious about saying we've made mistakes. But when there are opportunities to do something positive about it, they block. They've basically stuck two fingers up to survivors and said, we don't care. The synod drama was not yet over entirely, however. The next day, a fairly benign piece of safeguarding business was also on the agenda, approving a new code of practice for how to carry out these lessons learned reviews into historic cases of abuse. But before discussion could even begin, a prominent Synod member rose to try and have the entire item kicked off the agenda. How could the Synod just go on with the motions of safeguarding work when the church's entire apparatus for keeping people safe was in crisis, he argued. When that motion was dismissed, he stormed out of the chamber in disgust. Later, I managed to reach Jasvinda Sangera herself, one of the members of the now defunct ISB, to get her reactions to this tumult at Synod. 
Yesterday, as I was sat in the public gallery, you have to remember, we were not invited to speak. Uh, Me and Steve said we felt we needed to be there because there was a safeguarding on the agenda and we knew they would be talking about us and it was important for us to hear what they were going to say because we've never been given the right to have that discussion with any of them. So I really struggled in the public gallery. I found it really stifling because they were clearly saying things that were only portraying half the story, half the picture. They were choosing to leave out significant things like we requested independent mediation you know, they served a dispute notice on us in February. We have, we we basically said, look, we've told you 76 people do not want to share data with Megmon, and we're really struggling with managing this, albeit we've taken advice from the ICO. But the point here is, you know, you, you're not allowing us to work within our terms of reference, which you're actually ignoring now and saying it's a governance issue when they've been on our website for 19 months. And also, I sat there listening to them talking about synod papers and voting. We never, ever voted in a board meeting. So I sat there listening to them actually telling lies and missing out significant parts. And I was I feel really moved by the fact that members held them to account and our ability to speak on that platform yesterday was as a result of those members not because of Archbishop's Council Um, and okay we had five minutes and my reflections this morning were actually feelings of yes I'm really appreciative of the five minutes I mean I took six and a half minutes whatever but equally I feel a very strong sense of injustice it wasn't fair or equal. They had 25 minutes to present their safeguarding section, which included me and Steve talking about us. Um, they didn't discuss that paper with us before they presented it. So it wasn't fair or equal. Yes, we took the opportunity, but we didn't have preparation time like they've had for weeks, etc. So in five minutes, Tim, we were able to say very little. And we didn't have, you saw it, we were just speaking on the hoof. But we we were not able to give the detail for people to make informed opinions and judgments, etc. And for that reason, I feel there's been an injustice here. And I don't like the fact that my character was being um, discredited, actually. Because when I hear language like, this was a tragic relationship and they, they didn't get on with the first chair, they wouldn't meet with the second chair and et cetera, et cetera. That makes us appear unreasonable people, people that don't want to engage. You know, the dispute resolution notice they served on us, which they said they had no alternative in February, wouldn't meet with the chair, is absolute nonsense. That's not true. They served it upon us, and I made the point, to make it appear that we were not doing our job and we wouldn't engage with the chair. The truth of the matter is we were vindicated on every single thing they said in that dispute notice and the chair would not meet with us. She specifically stated that you are not to contact me or talk to me unless it's via a lawyer. (laughs) So they missed that bit out as well, Tim. Were you you encouraged, though, that how how many members of Synod seem to be on your side of this dispute? Absolutely. You know, this is my second synod and um, 
I don't really understand how Stinod work, except that they look for technicalities. Why not to answer a question, actually? Um, and and the fact that Synod members were one by one asking questions, challenging them, points of order. I mean, I mean me and Steve were absolutely overwhelmed by it. You know, we didn't, we were not aware of this level of um, anger from them and support from them. And afterwards, me and Steve stayed till about know, seven last night, and we were inundated with Synod members coming over to us, thanking us and saying. We really appreciate you. They called it bravery. Um, but but they were thankful that we spoke. They said, you've spoken for all of us. And we really appreciate it. What kind of things yeah. have you been hearing from survivors that you're in touch with who have been watching what happened over the weekend? Oh, wow. You know what? what is the most amazing thing for me this morning is the fact that I've had two survivors contact me. My worry was always that victims and survivors out there watching all this who have yet to report may be deterred from reporting. Mm. You know, I've worked with victims long enough to know that it, some never report, yeah? Mm. And if you're watching this and as a survivor of church abuse, victim of church abuse, and you're thinking, my word, if I report, they're not going to believe me, they're going to, it's going to be shambles, etc. This morning I had two new people I'd never heard from for, who were victims who said to me in an email, Thank you for speaking. You spoke for me and you've given me the courage to want to report to you as an ISB. So I had to say we're not well, we're not actually an ISB now because we're not. <laughs> um, but I'm pleased that you've got the courage to do that. And I just hope for their sake, the church gets its act in order for these people who might be finding confidence to come forward and report. But equally, for those who are already in the system, I mean, survivors yesterday i was holding them in tears they were holding us in tears they said they felt like this was a watershed moment but equally they said they felt this before but nothing like this at synod before so albeit there was a sense of you know this this is this is something different it feels different hmm. the question of what now is is a difficult one to answer and that's what made me email the archbishops this morning to say, you know, um, it, it did take me across to him to go yesterday. I was bumming and oaring about going. Um, because, you know, to stand in the faces of the people who've discredited you and who've made you feel like you didn't do a good job when we committed ourselves for 19 months and nine months without a chair. So going back to what will happen to the victims and survivors, I have no idea. I mean, me and Steve are data controllers. We hold all the data. At the moment, we're assuring the 10 people that your data will not be shared with anybody across the Church of England. I mean, they've specified no one in the Church of England is to see it, but specifically have named Meg. So th this is something we've got to discuss. There's, there's no going away from this. And me and Steve um, want to have that conversation because I can tell you, we both have looked in the eyes of those people and listened to their stories. And I feel a responsibility to that, as Steve does, and pass them on to some cold person to go through the whole thing again. That's taken us months to get them to the point of review or complaint. It's irresponsible. And we had a lot from the people from the Archbishop's Council who were speaking yesterday that they're that they're very passionate about safeguarding, that they really want independent, they do honestly want independent scrutiny. They want to move forward fast to ISB2. 
how, how do you respond to that? Do you believe them? Do you think it's just a, a group of people who disagree about how best to do this? Do you think their hearts are in the right place? I think the narrative is unconvincing, to be quite frank with you, Tim. Um, I think it's a knee-jerk reaction just to say, let's set up a board of independent people. And I, I actually took umbrage to Stephen Cottrell saying, we need independent people to tell us about phase two. Well, me and Steve are independent people and we were talking to them about phase one that will inform phase two. So I think it takes it's going to take a lot of thinking and planning and it will require conversations with the people that we have been engaging with. Look, and, and, and believe me, um, I, I want you to know very clearly from me and Steve, this is not sour grapes or anything. You know, we do all the work. The way they've handled this has been the tragedy. But we were somehow not yet finished with all the drama. On Wednesday, as Synod members arrived home and tried to digest what had just happened, Meg Munn, the third member of the ISB and also the long-standing chair of another church safeguarding panel, resigned. In an excoriating statement, she accused the Archbishop's Council of hanging her out to dry in her dispute with Reeves and Sanguera. Her fellow ISB members had unilaterally changed what their brief was, rendering the entire project a waste of time and money, she alleged. She was also present in the Synod chamber during Sunday's explosive session, and although at one point Archbishop Cottrell suggested she would also come and speak, she stayed sitting. Quote, I felt a combination of astonishment, incredulity and growing anger at what happened during the safeguarding debacle at General Synod on Sunday, she wrote in her statement. Quite what such a spectacle was meant to achieve, I do not know. It certainly did nothing to help safeguarding in the Church of England. She also received sympathy from her predecessor as chair of the ISB, Maggie Atkinson, who later wrote about the Synod experience, quote, The unchristian treatment of Meg Munn that afternoon, if it had been meted out to me, would have made me do as she did, walk out. Other members of the church are now trying to regain the initiative and counter the narrative being pushed by Reeves, Sangera, and others. Jamie Harrison, a lay member of the Synod and also a member of the Archbishop's Council, spoke after the debate about how difficult he had found the session. Um, very difficult. Um, I'm a member of the council and we realise that we've made quite a mess of what's been happening. Uh, we have a lot of regrets and um, that was being challenged by the, the Synod and asking quite strong and helpful and challenging questions. Uh, it's always hard to, to take them in. Um, they were quite right to ask them and I think uh, you know, people in the chamber were obviously conflicted by different stories from what they were hearing from different parties in the, in the room, yeah. Mm. Tough. But he rejected the accusation from Reeves that the council did not truly desire independent scrutiny. Yes, I mean, obviously one can understand why he said that. I think we have consistently been saying in the council and, and, and subsequently that we actually do want a fully independent board. Um, what that means is, is not obviously easy. I mean, how do you get real independence from us? Because in the end, the money has to come from somewhere. But we need to have a separate entity board, whatever, that will scrutinise the church, um, that will be financially significantly separate from the church, particularly will have its own governance systems. It will be 
fully able to do its own work without interference from the church. And that's been a struggle, I think, recently in the sense of they've felt interference and we've also been responsible. So we need to find a way of designing that sort of board, that sort of structure that says, yeah, absolutely independent, completely and totally. Mm. But how we get there is for the next stage. And when it came to survivors, Harrison said the only way to regain their trust was to demonstrate trustworthiness. The only way you can, where trust is lost, and I mean, obviously the survivors are a very wide range of people. There's survivors that we know about, survivors we don't know about, survivors all over the country and different. So it's always difficult to say specifically to any group of survivors. Um, but the only way that you can gain trust is to be trustworthy. I think they would perceive many of us that we haven't been trustworthy, so we have to find ways of becoming more obviously trustworthy, just around humility, around being clear, having transparency, uh, and being willing to listen to them particularly, and then design these next stages with their help and with external experts that they trust. Mm -hmm. So they need to trust other people probably than us, but we have to show our willingness to use external experts as well as survivors and victims of church-based abuse. No, only just again to repeat the regret we have. We've sensed that the council has failed. It's failed in its objectives, its governance, and it's particularly failed many, many survivors and victims of church-based abuse, and for that we're deeply sorry. Another Archbishop's Council and Synod member, Reverend Ian Paul, was more pugnacious, both in defending their decisions and in criticising those who were attacking the church. I mean, I, online, I'm finding all sorts... I mean, just this morning, I've had people on Twitter, just this conspiracy theory saying, the Archbishop's Council pulled the plug on the ISB because they're about to reveal something terrible. I mean, I don't know what people imagine that we're doing when we sit in a meeting room. I mean, I just, it's all so incredibly irrational. What, what we did is we met them, and we met them with Meg Munn. We sat in, we sat in a room with them. We sat with Meg. Meg Munn was in the room. They refused to even look at her, make eye contact. And, and the conversation made it extremely clear there was an absolutely fundamental breakdown of relationship. And I think that was illustrated in Synod when Steve Reeves said, when the council used the word independent, it doesn't mean what other people mean uh, when they use the word independent. What they mean is semi-detached. Well, I'm afraid that is absolute nonsense. And you can see that from all the documentation, all the conversations we've had. When the minutes of a meeting are published, it'll be clear as well. When we say independent, we mean independent. Two and a half years ago, the Archbishop's Council made a very clear decision. We must have leg a legally independent entity, entity which scrutinises the Church of England's whole approach to safeguarding. We said that absolutely clearly. We presented that to Synod. Synod signed it off. All the people sort of baying for blood in Synod seem to have completely forgotten the very document they signed off two years ago. It's most extraordinary. We're absolutely committed to it. And the reason why we said very clearly, the reason why we pulled the plug on the ISB was that they were not making any progress delivering what we'd asked them to do, which is alongside dealing with some of the historic cases, alongside, you know, reflecting on the current systems, also having a plan to lead towards uh, a fully legally independent entity. You must agree, though, that the optics of this, the PR, the kind of the way it looks to the outside world is disastrous for the church, because it's even if you dispute this is what actually happened, it looks to the outside world like the church hierarchy is to shut down kind of the one independent body that was trying to to hold them to account. Well, it it, it looks like that if you listen to one side of the story and you ignore the actual facts. So, I mean, I, yeah, the, the, the optics don't look good if you say, oh, gosh, we've done it wrong. Isn't it terrible? Um, we haven't rushed this. We thought very carefully. We, 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 we knew that it was going to it was going to look like bad news uh, for those for those who had come to believe that Jazz and Steve were the only people in the church 
who are at all concerned about survivors. That's the that's the that's the qualification. Now, if if that is the narrative that Jazz and Steve have been telling survivors, that's why they believe it. Well, we've got a real problem there, and there's no easy there's no easy way out of that. Now, people say, well, the National Safeguarding Team have handled cases badly. I I there there may have been problems with that, but let's have a look at them. Let's scrutinise them. I I don't line manage the the NST. Neither does anybody else in the Archbishop's Council. Um, but we know that there's been great care taken. Now, I'm not suggesting there's, any, there's no problems here, but that is precisely why we need a legal, legally independent entity which is scrutinising safeguarding practice and giving us a report and saying we're doing some things right, we're doing these things wrong. Moving forward, Paul insisted that those who now argued all of the church's safeguarding was a write-off due to the ISB debacle were just flat-out wrong. Safeguarding in the church is not in crisis. Everybody seems to have bought into this narrative because of this particular incident with these two people, safeguarding in the church is in crisis. Make mum point out, you know, the vast majority, I mean, I sort of said 99%, but that may be, I don't know if that's accurate. The vast majority of safeguarding work going on in the church has got nothing to do with the Archbishop's Council or with Jazz and Steve. They, they were dealing with, my understanding is, six historic cases. Some say it's 10 historic cases. We'd, we'd, we'd passed over 700 and nearly £750,000 over two years. At the moment, as, far as, we, as far as I know up till now, one of those cases has been resolved. The vast majority of work and safeguarding in the Church of England is done in parishes and in dioceses. It's done by safeguarding officers in the church. We've got a safeguarding officer in our church. We've got a safeguarding statement on our, on our homepage, on our website. That's where the work is being done. And yes, as Meg Munn says, not everything is perfect, but we've made massive strides and we've got, you know, every I have to do a safeguarding um, top-up training every year to retain my license. So we're in a completely different place than we were even five years ago. And the idea that because there's been a, a, a complete breakdown of communication between these two people and the Archbishop's Council, the idea that safeguarding in the Church of England is in crisis, I'm sorry, it's just untrue. And it's, un, it's misleading. And I think it's incredibly unhelpful. The idea that that people are suddenly less safe now in the church than they were before this last weekend is just nonsense because their safety depends on, doesn't depend on us and the Archbishop Council on these two individuals. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that these two individuals have now suddenly become the be-all and end-all to the church's safeguarding, apparently. So the, 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 the real issues around safeguarding are what's happening on the ground in churches, that people are alert to safeguarding issues, that on, at every event that, that there's safeguarding prioritisation in, in youth groups. Uh, working with young people, working with the vulnerable, as we do masses of in our church. That this this is this is where the work is doing is being done. But it must be a problem. Then you know you said yourself the Archbishop's Council wanted independent scrutiny, and yes. currently we're no closer to achieving that. Three years on from that decision was made, is that a concern to you that all this so time it's and a, money it's is a being deep wasted? To me. It's a deep concern to me, and given that other pe members of the council have, have, have tell, said what they're. Uh, voting decision was i can i feel i can tell you i urged nine months ago that we pull the plug on the isp because i could see we we're making zero progress towards this major goal it was never going to happen and, and i'm afraid other people said oh gosh won't the optics be bad when we pull the plug and the answer is yes and the optics get worse the longer you wait so that's why we really need and i think the failure meg Munner said this the failure of the archbishop's council has not been pulling the plug it's been not putting the plug soon enough
Looking forward, there were plenty of off-the-shelf models for external scrutiny the church could adopt in place of the ISB, Ian Paul added, urging speed as well as plenty of consultation with victims and survivors. But he also noted survivors were not a monolith and often disagreed not only on policy choices but also who should be allowed to call themselves a survivor of church-based abuse. The Archbishop's Council, for their part, have already announced that they will order yet another review, this time into its decision to terminate the ISB, and will begin soon looking for more independent figures who can help them establish a second, truly legally distinct ISB. Meanwhile, all Synod members have just received a press release announcing the establishment of a mysterious independent safeguarding office, a new organisation which has offered itself as a regulator for the church, but entirely separate from it. It is unclear who exactly is behind this proposal, which claims to be funded by donors, nor if it could actually go anywhere without the support of the church hierarchy. As claim and counterclaim swirl around, and labyrinthine bureaucracies clash and conflict, safeguarding looks set to be a battlefield in the church for many more years to come. Whether any of this is actually keeping vulnerable people safe from abuse in church remains an open question. That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast, but if you've enjoyed what you heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use, and why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget, you can also subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get each new episode sent automatically to your phone or tablet week by week. If you've got any questions, feedback, or want to suggest a topic we should explore, you can email me at tswyatt at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast.